Welcome to our next episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the Five Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them, and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology. Hey friends, welcome back to another Performance Matters podcast. Bob Mosier here. It's so wonderful to have you join us again. Happy New Year. I think I can still say that. It's mid-February or so, but great talking to you all. Uh, This particular episode, really excited about who you're going to meet because we talking just a moment ago that, that we really don't get as into the weeds of five moments and into the weeds of, of workflow design and such as we should. And so this episode, we have just a remarkable developer um, on our group, just tremendous background and just does great work helping us in the dialogue of what that has been like for her. So I'd like, love you to meet Donna. Donna, you want to say hello and give a little bit about your, your background, my friend? Okay. Hi, I'm Donna Audrich and um, I'm a consultant now with Supply Synergies and I have been in the learning and development field for more years than I can count. I'm not going to say how many, um, <laughs> but um, it was an accidental field for me. This is not what I set out to do, um, but I think one of the things that I bring into the field from my previous life was the ability to analyze large quantities of information and and so, as I said, it was accidental, but here I am, and I've been doing it for a long time, and I'm, I'm very much taken with all five moments. It's one of those things that once you learn it, you can't go back to the way you did things before. So. That's wonderful. That's why you're so terrific at it. You bring such a wonderful perspective, we are fortunate to have had you join our team. So, friend, let's get into this. So, many who listen will be developers. They'll have that background. Take us kind of at the 30,000 foot and let's begin. We're going to go deep into what we call rapid workflow analysis and the, and, and the process of what really does separate the beginning of and the essence, the foundation of this model compared to others. And it's what happens in an RWA, what that means and to us rapid workflow analysis. Help us delineate what is probably a more common understanding to those listening around things like needs analysis mm-hmm. or task, whatever we called it in the addy days of this. Can you kind of take us to the high level and to you, what is the, the fundamental difference that you see in the models? I think um, to me, the biggest difference around rapid workflow analysis is one is, is the way that it puts things in the context of people's work. And instead of looking at, I think a lot of times the needs analysis, we're looking, we're focused on what, what's missing, what don't we have. We might be focused from a learning perspective and task analyses are often really, really detailed all the way down in the weeds. And um, so I think the rapid in the rapid workflow analysis comes from staying at the task level and not getting down into the weeds. And I think one of the things that really makes it different is the ability to gather those tasks from the performer's perspective in the context of the actual work that they do. Mm. I think those are some of the biggest differences that I see. Brilliant. So let's peel the onion back a little bit more on this whole thing. And the contextual pivot is what we call a scope statement, crafting what's called a scope statement. Tell us a bit more about what that is and its intent. Okay, so I think that that crafting of the scope statement is just so critical to the beginning 
of a rapid workflow analysis that a lot of thought has to go into it and a lot of discussion has to go into it. And it is not a box checking exercise the way, mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a lot of people in learning will say, oh, yeah, we have to identify the audience. And they'll say, yeah, look, so these are the people that the audience for this course is. And right. really, the scope statement is not just a matter of what is the output of it, like, who do we identify the audience, but the discussion that happens during the crafting of that scope statement is critical. The, the client coming in and like really clearly identifying what is their business problem that they're trying to solve and who really are those people that are doing the performance that we're talking about and learning to speak to them in their language so that you're not just saying it's all new employees or it's all employees with such and such a title, but like really getting at how do they, who, how do they understand who those people are so that you can make them real in their minds as you go into it. So the scope statement puts together a statement that says it identifies both the audience and the performance objective for your rapid workflow analysis. And you need both of those to be clearly defined to keep your guardrails around where you're going to go. Because if you want your rapid workflow analysis to be rapid and also, um, you know, to be fruitful, you need to keep people from going off into things that are not part of what your scope is. Thing, you know, well, is that really part of achieving this objective that we all clearly identified and agreed upon? And is that really something that this audience that we all agreed upon mm -hmm. does? Because too often you get subject matter experts that just, they know so much and they want to put everything out there and it's hard to keep it in scope. So that scope statement is really critical. And it's not just, you know, writing it down. It's making sure you had the discussions around what do we mean by all of the words that we put in a scope statement. It really is the beginning of buy-in, isn't it? Yes. From, from folks, Absolutely. Right? It's mm -hmm. not us directing that. It's not coming in and saying we've been we've been tasked with a five-day leadership course. Right. Right. I mean that I, I love the pivot on performance and the dialogue really begins as early as the scope statement in the degree to which what we're pivoting on and what the outcome. It's also kind of the beginning of a measurement discussion in some ways. Right. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. you're asking that you're starting with what what is it the problem that you're trying to solve? And right. if and we're assuming that we already have buy into this approach. I mean, if you have if you don't have that buy in first that, you know, that discussion starts even before that. And if you can't have that discussion with your client, sometimes it's not even worth going the next step because you have See, to meet brilliant. them where they are. I, I love that about this because again, it changes the discussion in the very beginning about what you're building and should you build anything? Mm -hmm. And is this a performance problem versus just building something for the sake of having having content or a course? Mm -hmm. Love that. So this group you're gathering, the RWA team, again, I think there's some significant differences as to why this group's different than the one we gathered before, right? Can you take us a bit yes. deeper into in the, the right people in the room and, and their role there. So I think it's really critical that you have the right people. And I think in the old days, we, we would always have a SME, somebody who was the subject matter expert and their heads were full of content. And we tried to dig that content out of their heads. And in this case, I think one of the most important people to have in the room is who is it that's your audience? Who does this work that we're trying to document the workflow for? And because we want to know how is the work actually being done, not how do we wish it were being done. So we need just, we need, we need multiple people. So we need 
someone who does the job, ideally you have someone who does already does the job, who may be an expert in doing that work. But and yeah. it's also helpful to have a new person, a novice person who remembers what are my questions, the things that I don't understand. Then of course you do need your business experts, the people who are in charge of the overall process, the people mm. who, who want the process to be the way they want it to be. And you want your subject matter experts who can kind of, I see them more as backfilling, the ones that are kind of filling in the background and helping to understand why systems work the way they do, for example. But really, you need to have those people that are doing the work in the room, and you need to make sure that they have a voice in the discussion. Yeah, and I, we've always talked about, you know, if you got to have a ratio, a two to one BME to SME kind of helps because the SME can dominate, right? They can be, yes. they're pretty outspoken about what they think should be. And you really have to balance that voice with those that are doing the work and aspire to be mm-hmm. an SME. Yeah. So in a lot of organizations, folks who listen, they do this now. They ask us, not this per se, but they ask SMEs to come in a room. They know the shtick. They fill the whiteboard with a whole bunch of things people should know, all that kind of stuff. How do you educate this group? Because expectation setting and so on, particularly again, for those that have done another way, is probably really important to how things go as you get into the process. Mm -hmm. What things you talk about in this area? So this is is actually something I learned from you, Bob. This was one of the things I was most impressed with when I watched my first RWA. And it was how you brought everyone in the room along on the journey by helping them to understand why are we doing this? what we're doing, like what, what is the, why do an RWA, what does it mean to do an RWA? Why do we use these terms like a process and a task and a step? And what do we mean by the difference between those? And why do we separate out what people do from what people know? And what's the difference between supporting knowledge and a task? One of the things that I was really impressed with was that you gave them each of those pieces of information at just the right moment, just, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're doing what you're supposed to do, you know, you didn't talk about critical impact of failure at the very beginning before they even had their list of tasks. You kind of fed them a little bit of information at each step along the way. Now we're going to do this and here's why, and this is why it's significant. And this is what we're going to be able to do with this information that you are helping to bring us along with. So I think that educational piece during the RWA is also really important. Yeah, vocabulary. It's always been a big deal for me. And they do have expectations from past experience. And but more importantly, you want to kind of have that trickle down from the scope statement to now we're going to talk about the piece, the elements that help us meet that scope statement. And there is a difference, right? And we, and we all know that pivot on importance that SMEs just. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that critical impact of failure analysis, like that really needs some education yeah, can, can there. Give us, can you give us a little bit more on that? What have you found your experience to be? I always found that the toughest part. I went wrong word. I always found that to be the most intriguing part of the dialogue, although tasks kind of, we went back and forth and so on, but the really essence of the performance came out in critical skills to me. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you have our folks understand a little bit about what that exercise is like? So I think when we talk about the critical impact of failure, it's really important to help them understand what do we mean by that. And like you said, the SMEs think everything is important. And so one of the first things I always do is try to reassure them that yes, all of this is important. All of these 
tasks that we gathered are really important. And all of these are going to be conveyed in one way or another to the users. Nothing is going to be lost because sometimes mm. they're they're afraid. Like, if I don't say this is important, then people aren't going to learn about it. And so we talk about like what what really would happen if somebody didn't do this particular task correctly? Is it is it really going to be the end of the world? And I walk them through an exercise in customizing that one through seven scale. I have them customize it to their own work. What does it mean? What is really a catastrophe in your line of business? And it's mm. different depending if you're de- dealing with privacy concerns or financial concerns or, or you're dealing with safety, obviously that, you know, there's, they have very different meanings and I make sure that they are really concrete in how they define a one, the three, a five, and a seven. So that as we go through that exercise, I'll come back and I'll say like, really, you, you're calling this one a six here and this is how you defined it. Is that what would happen? And they're like, oh no, not really. <laughs> it's not really that critical. Or, or they'll say, yes, it is that critical. And sometimes they have trouble distinguishing between something that they consider critical because it's an early task mm. in the process. Like if you can't get past this one, you never get to those and that would be the end of the world. And so you kind of have to step back and say, but think about in real life. I keep trying to put them in real life. In real life, somebody couldn't figure out how to log on to the system. It really is your whole business going to stop now because that person couldn't log on? No, they're probably going to find another way or someone else is going to pick up the slack. What's really critical is if that user didn't know they're not supposed to hit the delete button. You know, I mean, those are the kinds of things that are really critical. So I was in one that I thought was really funny. Somebody said, I'm a little disappointed that none of our tasks are sevens. Like that, you know, like, and I, and I had to reassure them that your tasks are important. They're just yeah. not critical. Yeah, so. I, I love that distinction. I often would say, look, we're, when you get to the wrap up of the tasks and such, and you, and you sort of segue into critical skills, I always say, look, you guys, is everything up here relatively what, what you think, at least for now, mm-hmm. what's done in this role? Sure. Okay, look, it's all important. It, w- it wouldn't be on the board if it wasn't important. What we have to distinguish now is how we help people master it, internalize it, transfer it, perform mm-hmm. it. And now we're segueing in, 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 into design. We're getting into instruction now. And we need a way to decide what's taught and frankly, what's not. Although it's all going to be, to your point, it's all going to be shown, nothing skipped. It's just about where and when, right? But mm-hmm. you're right. You have to keep coming back to that because when they get into the weeds of those words, we had one person at once who said, you know, I, after having gone through this, I just put people through a week course, week long course, flew them, flew them in from other, took them in hotels, the whole deal. And we probably didn't have to teach them any of that mm-hmm. because really nothing was critical that they couldn't have learned better mm-hmm. through a digital culture on their own. All right. Significant pivot in design. So most companies you probably walk into have stuff. Right. They've got it might be an existing course that they're converting or they've got a lot mm-hmm. of resources already or you know, that type of stuff. What is what goes into the preparing side of this from a facilitator perspective, um, not just in the RWA, frankly, but in kind of the facilitating the whole process? I like to be able to see what they're already working with mm. um, just so that I know where they're coming from and that so that I can begin to speak their language, so to speak, you know, when, when you kind of see the kind of words and the language that they use, then you can talk to them in a way that they understand. If they have something like a user manual or a previous 
VS course or um, something, any kind of existing materials that they're already using, I look through and I begin to develop my own list of what might be a task. You know, we go, you kind of go through this exercise of if you read a lot of these, the, a lot of learnings will there's a lot of content there, but there, you can't really tell what the task is. Mm. So I might do a first pass at trying to discern what possibly the tasks are going to be in here. But I don't share that usually during mm. the RWA unless we're really, really stuck. I might throw out some suggestions. Well, you know, somewhere in your training, I read that there's a lot of information about this particular topic. Why is it so important that you're people know about that? What are they doing with that information? And, you know, kind of elicit the tasks from them as opposed to coming in and saying, here's the tasks that I found in your right. existing materials, because then you kind of predispose them to your way of thinking and it may not be accurate. Brilliant. When you're facilitating, what's the art of that for you? What are things to, you know, I mean, I watch Khan do this a hundred times. There's an art to design. There's clearly a nuance to the facilitation of an RWA. What are some things you can share in your experience in this area or best practices, lessons learned, pitfalls? So I think one of my most important things that I had to learn was to be quiet and to let them do the thinking and the talking. You really have to sit back and let them talk amongst themselves because more often than not, I have found that their processes really aren't as set as they think they are. There will be a disagreement, for example, between the person who owns the process and the person who's actually doing the job. And they may never have talked about these things before. And I think in a lot of ways, I often feel like what we're doing at this point in the RWA that is of more value than anything else is just being a place where they can gather and talk to each other. Because sometimes it's surprising how the person that designed what the process was supposed to look like or the person that created this the system, if it's a system task, never really talked to the people that are doing the job. And so when you're in there and you're kind of a buffer between those people because you're asking the questions and you, I come you know, in there as I'm an outsider and I don't know and I'm asking, how do you do this? And you know, you'll hear them say, oh, I didn't know you did that. Or, or you'll hear them say, yeah, I know the book says I'm supposed to do that, but it doesn't really work that way. And then you have to really be patient sometimes while they're sorting out what do they want to document? And, and mm. I think this came up in a meeting I was in this morning is, are we documenting the way we want it to be? Or are we documenting the way it is? Um, yeah. we, we usually advocate, let's, you know, for now, let's, let's document what is because that awareness is the beginning of being able to change. Oh, and nice. I, I think it's, it was very frustrating for me sometimes, you know, as a, coming in from a learning perspective of you think your stuff should already be there and all set and all I'm going to do is give you a way to teach it to someone else. That's kind of oh, the nice. learning way of thinking. And it was frustrating in learning too, when you have a SME that's, uh, you know, when they don't really know, you know, what it is and you're sorting that out, right? So I think even more of that happens during an RWA when their processes are not sort out, sorted out because they haven't all been in the room together to talk about how it should be. So I, I do think you need to keep putting yourself in the place of, I am the person who is going to have to do this job. What do mm. I need to know? I, th so if they're flailing or they're going off on, you know, a tangent about something, I keep coming back to, I'm the so-and-so, however they define the audience. And what do I do next? 
what do mm. I have to do? And if they keep going, saying things to you, like, oh, they all need to know about X, Y, and Z. Like, <laughs> I, you know, it's like, well, okay, that's great. That's like really important. I'm going to put it over here in this parking lot where we put our supporting knowledge. And what do they do with that information? Just, it, you know, you kind of sound like a broken record. What do I do with that information? And, or if you can't get it from what do I do with it? Sometimes you get it from why do I need to know? Why do I need to know that information? You know, one thing I've seen over and over again, Donna, and you coined it perfectly, is that many organizations don't know the work of the worker. Mm -hmm. They they really, really don't. It amazes me how many organizations we've gone into with SMEs in the room when they balance with a BME. Or, or a manager in there who frankly may not have been in the field in forever, but is, but is dictating a sales process or a whatever, when they sit and hash out the reality of doing, even if it may not, I loved your point earlier, even, even it may not be where they want to get to, you can't get there till you know the work. All right. And you're right, in many organizations, they really have never sat down, stepped back and had a facilitated discussion around what the workflow, right or wrong, legal or not. I mean, we've seen that before, <laughs> you know, not maliciously, but and we had more stakeholders leave an RWA and say, look, if you do nothing else for us, the discussion we just had over mm-hmm. the last two, three days transforms my department. Mm-hmm. I've actually of- had that experience where, um, you know, the client didn't go on any further than the RWA. Um, they didn't have the whatever the capital or the funding or whatever they decided not to. But at the end of that, that when we had a series of meetings because it was virtual and it took us a while to get everybody, you know, together. But at the end of that, they said, we never knew what our process looked like. And this is amazing, like now, and because that gives them a tool to go forward, whether they need to revise their process, or they just need to revise how they're um, providing information to people. Now they have that context, that workflow context is magic, I think. So you've done this a bunch. Keywords, do you listen in the art of Mm -hmm. listening? Is there, are there things that you, that help you keep them on track? You kind of feel they're maybe drifting from performance. Mm-hmm. As a schooled and a brilliant facilitator of this, what would you share with others as, as things that you listen for? So I, I always listen for, of course, um, they need to know, you know, obviously <laughs> if they're telling you, well, they need to know or they need to understand, mm-hmm. um, you know, anything along those lines. One, you want to park it in your, wherever you're keeping your list of potential supporting knowledge topics, but two, usually that's at a door into a task. And so you ask them, like I said, well, why do I need to know that? And what am I going to do with that information? And then they start seeing when you're, if you're doing it in mural, for example, and you're putting the posties up, you're asking them for a verb, you know, and if, and sometimes it sounds like, you know, you sound like you're the grammar police. I want a <laughs> verb. And, but ultimately they get it, like why you're looking for because you're looking for an action that you can do. So sometimes you start getting them just putting a verb in front of something that's not not really a task. And that's a little bit, little bit more of a challenge because just putting a verb in front of it is not necessarily at your task level. So if yeah. they say, well, they need to identify something, well, now, you know, they're in learning speak, right? Because our objectives often started with identify. But if they say they need to be able to find something, they, in a system, they might be able to say they need to navigate to something. Or a systems person might say they need to know what's on the such and such a tab, or they need to know about, Mm. about, that's another one, and they need to know about some kind of functionality. So you need to like keep asking them questions like, why do they need to know that? And, or another way to get at it is to what end? 
Like, Perfect. why am I navigating to this place? Like, I'm not going to come into work and have my task be, I need to navigate to this place. And now I'm going to sit here and say, I accomplished something, right? You, right. I'm navigating to there because I needed to get what done. And Perfect. sometimes those things that I would say, the other thing is sometimes there's, they don't even realize some of the tasks that they do if they're not the kind of hands-on things. If they're mental tasks, they may just take for granted that stuff that goes on in their head. Those kind of things you you just kind of have to watch out for and start asking them. Like if it looks like something's missing between task A and task C, you got to suss out like what, what happened in between here? Mm. What And mm. what did you do? And they may not think of it as something that they did because it might have been something they thought about. Right. But there's definitely, there are mental tasks just like there are hands-on physical well, tasks. That, yeah, Khan calls them principle-based, mm-hmm. right? There are principle-based tasks and there are procedural-based right. tasks, mm-hmm. but they are in, in a matter of speaking performed, right? Yeah, right. brilliant. So, hey, friend, excellent. Wrapping up. If you think about those listening, gone into the weeds a bit, in your years of doing this, what are some big takeaways you've gotten from doing this? That as people journey this for the first time, you really want to be sure they're grounded in these ideas. Mm-hmm. So the very first thing I would say is to trust the process because it really does work if you step back and allow it to work. And I think it's very nerve wracking to, I'm a doer, I want to get in there and make things happen. And so it can be it can be hard to sit back and allow the process to unfold. Mm. Um, and to remember that it's not, I think the reason well, the reason I get anxious about it sometimes is because I'm already thinking like, this is my job to come out with a workflow and a a list of tasks. And ultimately we're going to create a digital coach. And I'm already thinking way down the lines of all the things that it's my job to create. But at this point in the rapid workflow analysis, I am not creating that. I'm uncovering it. I'm helping them to find it. They may not even know it themselves. And so Mm -hmm. it truly is a facilitation process. And if you think of your role as being successful, if you brought those people together to figure out what their process was and you documented it, that in itself is, like we said, it's a huge thing right there. So trust that that's going to happen. It does get messy. And sometimes Mm -hmm. um, it can be very frustrating, especially, you know, I've done a bunch of virtual ones where you know you break it up over time and it's really hard to sit in a in a teams meeting or a zoom session for long periods of time and everybody tempers get a little short and you know you break at the end of the day sometimes and going oh my gosh what a mess I have these stickies all over the place and I don't know and oftentimes you come back the next morning and everybody kind of like marinated a little bit and they're like oh okay like now I get it and so that's one thing is to trust that process The other thing would be, which I think of as the flip side, is don't just squish down your own intuition that, you know, like I said, if it feels like something's missing from a process, push a little bit and say, what do you really do in between here and here? Because if I had to do this job and keep putting yourself in that person's shoes, if I had to do this job and I knew that I had to do this task and that task, I'm not sure I would know how I got from one to the other. So is there something else that you do in here? And, you know, they may say, oh yeah, you do X, Y, and Z, or they may say, oh, that you pass it off to someone else and someone else does. And that's why it's missing. So I think you need to kind of trust your own instructional intuition when you feel like something is missing. And like I said, I actually sometimes put a sticky on my, on my computer that says shut up because it just, (laughs) 
listening. You just have to like let them talk and don't, you have to be willing to sit in silence when an uncomfortable thing happens in, yeah. our, in an RWA. Somebody doesn't know or somebody argues, you know, like, I don't really like it when conflict erupts and, you know, you get, sometimes you get a process person and a, a SME or a process this person is the one who's doing the job and they're like this doesn't work this way and it's not your job to solve that for them you just brought them together so they can figure it out and trust that they're going to figure it out and so you just sit back and let them do that and then I think the last thing is to be patient with the people that you're working with because I definitely remember what a huge pivot it was for me to shift to that performance mindset when I first Mm -hmm. did my certificate course. And I know how hard that is. It's hard for us as instructional designers to make that pivot sometimes. And our clients, most of them have never been through that training. They haven't been through the process and they still may be in kind of the old way of doing things, the old learning mode. And so it's um, being patient with them while they see the value of, and they will see the value of shifting um, to a performance. I mean, we're not making a course. When when are we going to start doing the outline? Mm That whole thing. Well, Donna, just spectacular. My gosh, you're really such a wonderful school of the of the discipline. You've really, I've watched you become just miraculous at it with those you serve. And I know those that listen will find great value in hearing your thank experience you. and your story. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Thank you, Bob. I learned from a master from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all in this together, my friend. And this will help others. Thanks so much. So friends, thanks for listening. Tune into another future podcast coming in a bit. And if you have any ideas, feedback, by all means, let us know. We'd love to be sure we're meeting your needs as we perform these for the rest of the year. So thanks, friends. Thanks, Donna. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.thenumber5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.